All Things Unexplained, hosted by Dr. Mounts. Let's face it, we were always ready to roll without him anyway. <laughs> CJ Derringer. Ain't nobody perfect, right? And Smitty Needs. I've never planned out hardly anything my whole life. I just free ball. Featuring Cajun Man. Uh, I'm just old nobody, somebody looking for somebody. It's Halloween 2022. I'm Dr. Mounts. We're back with All Things Unexplained. CJ Derringer is with us. Hello, hello. CJ, how's it going tonight? Oh, good. I know that I am going to be losing sleep after this episode. All things spooky. (laughs) (laughs) That makes it a successful Halloween episode. We're doing ghost stories tonight. Smitty, he's back with us. I should have wore black. That way I'd been back in black like ACDC. (laughs) And we have got special guests with us. Here with us on very short notice, we really appreciate him. He's an Asheville, North Carolina historian. He's currently working on a big regional project of a 60s music project for Gear Fab Records Psychedelic State Series, The Carolinas in the 1960s. Let's welcome to All Things Unexplained, Vance Pollock. Glad to be here. Folks can go to localmusicscenesc.com backslash news to find out more about your big project, the Carolinas in the 1960s. Maybe you could tell everybody what that's about exactly. Well, during the 1960s, there was this nationwide phenomena, actually, of uh, young people, particularly in the wake of the Beatles, uh, putting together rock bands. Uh, and they played some talent shows or some sock hops or dances around town, but they were virtually unknown, you know, over the mountain or 50 miles down the road. This is going to be volume 26 of uh, Gear Fab Records' Psychedelic State series, and it's going to cover teenage rock and roll bands from North and South Carolina during the 1960s. Some really great songs, uh, you know, forgotten gems from... uh, you know, the local high schools all over the place, uh, actually. And um, some of these songs haven't uh, ever been re-released since they were uh, cut as 45 RPM records, you know, 55 years or more ago. Uh, you're talking about musicians who were primarily teenagers at the time, and they're uh, septuagenarians now. Did any of them make it big? You know... The only sort of success stories some of these groups had was that they did garner some regional radio play. Uh, And some of them were talented enough that they were invited to play at places like uh, uh, Myrtle Beach, of course, which was a huge music scene. I've talked to a number of these guys that when they were invited to play at uh, the pavilion at Myrtle Beach, that was like a thrill to them to go down there, uh, you know, during the summer uh, or spring break and uh, and have girls 
uh, screaming and, and fawning over them and they felt like superstars just a little bit but as far as uh, making millions and uh, having a, a hit seller or chart records virtually none <laughs> almost no stories like that i bet they weren't playing the shag i bet they weren't playing shag music in myrtle well the, yeah the bands on psychedelic states uh, series tend to focus on you know your your straight up guitar bass uh, drums and vocal and maybe some farfisa you know keyboards thrown in there once in a while uh a la 96 tears oh yeah well we've brought vance pollock here with us tonight Asheville, North Carolina historian, to tell us a little bit more about some creepy things from Asheville's past. And Vance, one of those, started going up in the late 1800s, a mountaintop castle by the name of Zealandia. Yeah, Zealandia, uh, actually on, on Bowcatcher Mountain or Bowcatcher Ridge, uh, is a very very mysterious place and it was it was built by a man by the name of john evans brown and it actually looked like a castle on the hillside and it was named zealandia because as a young man uh uh john evans brown had gone to new zealand and, and he was actually a member of parliament in new zealand and he was a successful sheep farmer down there and rancher and so he came back to uh, the United States with a fortune he had made in, in New Zealand, and he built this, uh, you know, this grand estate on Bowcatcher. Uh, along about 1904, uh, the character who is, it looms large in, in most of the ghost stories associated with Bowcatcher in the Zealandia area, uh, Sir Philip Henry, a very wealthy Englishman, uh, purchased the estate he remodeled uh, that castle structure into a, a Tudor-style mansion, and um, he built what is known today as Helen's Bridge over a gap on the property. Uh, he actually owned parcels on both sides of the ridge, and he built this bridge over the gap, and it was known at the time as Henry's Bridge or Zealandia Bridge, uh, but today most properly known as Helen's Bridge because of the ghost uh, who allegedly uh, haunts these environs. Oh yeah, that's a, that's a fantastic early photograph of it before the road was paved. And it looks very much like that today. Uh, there's a few more trees and uh, growth and everything on, on the banks, but uh, it's uh, unmistakable. Yeah, there's a more modern view of it. Helen's Bridge. Um, I think factually, the thing about the ghosts at Helen's Bridge, whatever uh, variation of the story is being told, I think the fact that it's a fairly secluded spot within five minutes or so of downtown and it's accessible to teenagers lends well to ghost stories. <laughs> all the high school kids after the football game on Friday night, they need a local haunt, literally. You know, they need some place oh, where yeah. they go and, uh, uh, you know, get a good scare, uh, send goosebumps yeah. down one another's spines. And, and I, it's, it seems to me that a group of teenagers egging one another on 
encouraging one another uh, and and telling these sort of campfire stories uh, is Bridge evolved. And there are what, what I would call an amalgam of true events that sort of go toward piecing together the modern telling of the Helen's Bridge story. Uh, the most popular account, um, as told in my friend Joshua P. Warren's book, Haunted Asheville, is that there was a lady who was working on Philip Henry's estate at Zealandia, and there was a fire, and she was so distraught that she couldn't take it anymore. She hung herself from the bridge. And since that time, if you go there on a, on a moonlit night, and it's all quiet, and you call out, Helen, come forth. Helen, come forth. Helen, come forth. Then she will appear. Now, I've been up there. I was up there the first time, probably as a teenager, with some of my cousins that went to a... (laughs) And something that one out of, I'd say, every three or four people who have hung around up there much will tell you is that their car stalled or wouldn't start. Oh. Or they saw, you know, ghostly handprints on the glass. And in some cases... In a related story, uh, people have said that were actually handprint in trunk lid into the paint on the trunk of their car, and they someone pushed their car down the mountain. So uh, this sort of thing is is really oh. <laughs> really good fodder for ghost stories, and it's chilling stuff. And and to be up there on the mountain uh, on a misty, chilly night much like this time of year. And as I was going back over the some of the news clippings that I sent you today, I noticed Helen's Bridge was being built exactly 115 years ago because it was announced in mid-October of 1907 um, that the bridge would begin construction. And then about mid-November, 1907 it was announced that construction on the bridge had completed so you're talking about Mm -hmm. 115 years ago there were workmen up there on the mountain constructing what is known as helen's bridge you pulled up a clip there about a very tragic incident um, that would have played directly uh with the bridge um sir philip henry built the first bridge. It was a temporary structure, a wooden structure, I believe, over the gap in about 1905. Well, the next year, his personal valet, a man named James Monterey, as noted here, 25 years old, he's staying on the adjoining parcel up the mountain over the bridge from Zealandia in what was a boarding house or a a workman's uh, bunkhouse. And no one understands why. By all accounts, he was in a good mood that morning. But um, some men who went up to the boarding house and were coming down the hall about 10.30 one morning in May in 1906 looked into James Monterey's room and saw him laying in a pool of blood. Mm. Oh, no. 
and he had he had ended it all, you know. Uh, and the coroner's jury declared that it was self-inflicted, um, and he was by the newspaper account. If uh, you pull that entire account, it mentions that he was very dear to Sir Philip Henry. He was a young Englishman. Uh, Philip Henry had brought him to the U.S. to uh, you know to be a servant, personal servant to him, and um, it was said that he he thought of him as a son. So uh, imagine the the trauma, the tragedy of losing someone that close to you, you know, quite unexpectedly. And um, certainly I do believe that most of the more popular ghost stories uh, hinge on a traumatic event like that, whether it be a suicide or a car accident or murder, uh, some some form of trauma or tragedy seems to leave a very deep impression where these popular ghost stories are concerned. Oh yeah. One interesting thing, Vance, I thought about Sealandia was that apparently it went up about the same time as the famous mansion Biltmore and a couple of other mansions around there in Asheville. And you and I had actually talked about this. I wonder, I and, and CJ and I talked about this, I wonder, you know, we had, you, I feel like there was probably in that time such a dichotomy between poor and rich, right? Like, I feel like the poor, they probably didn't have time for debaucherous, evil things to be happening. And it just makes me wonder, like, how many, you know, was there a connection, I wonder, between... The famous, because I read about the Biltmores going over for dinner parties at Zealandia. Do you think, do you think the rich just had more freedom to be debaucherous and for evil things to kind of be, you know, on their timeline, so to speak? I think they certainly had a more glamorous setting for types of things like of this nature. My, nature but my mother grew up in in the deep mountains uh in poverty a couple counties away near burnsville north carolina and there are just as many ghost stories and murder stories and things like that in the deep rural areas but they aren't as glamorous they aren't maybe as universal or as uh ooh ah they they don't uh they don't really tend to uh attract attention uh uh you know of the sort that uh, the Vanderbilts or the Groves, Grove Park Inn is is notorious for their pink lady. I just want to point out real quickly that, you know, what you're saying, Tim, is interesting, but in this particular case, both of the deaths mentioned were people that worked for the families, not people in the families. So they, I'm not sure how that ties in with having more time for debauchery, both of these people were, were part of the staff, it sounds, and both took their lives. So what does that tell you about their jobs with those people? They got worked to death. Yeah, in this case, it was the, the tragedy of, of workers, but I think a, that there is a certain grain of truth to the fire story, which we never were able to document that there had been a fatal fire on the henry estate at zealandia but 
Just before he arrived in Asheville, Sir Philip Henry's wife, Florine Henry, had perished in a hotel fire in mm. New York City. Oh, my. So I have a feeling that he carried some of this lore along with him, and it was misconstrued and retold and rehashed and, and married in with other local grander tales, you know, such as the Helen Clevenger right. murder in 1936 in Battery Park Hotel. I think that the name Helen may have been borrowed from Helen Clevenger, who was murdered in the Battery Park Hotel downtown Asheville in 36. Oh. Um, but out at Grove Park Inn, where the pink lady uh, roams the halls, and she is also um, alleged to have been a lady of the evening, uh, a... a a um, call girl or a escort. <laughs> we can who, read between uh, the lines. <laughs> supplemental yeah, income. Right. Who uh, threw herself off the balcony into Palm Court. And yeah. it's further said that the reason we can't document this or find anything about it is that the establishment there did not want that news to get out. Uh, much like I mentioned uh, in our communication briefly that uh, Biltmore Estate, and I've, I've heard this again and again, that they have a non-disclosure clause in their employment contract that if you're working on the Biltmore grounds or in the estate and you have ghostly experiences, you will not publicize them. You will not talk about oh, them. Oh, so wow. Because that's not the image that, that Biltmore that's is incredible. trying to promote. Even even though they could do a heck of a Halloween event, you know, but that's right. not what they're pushing for there. Oh, um, yeah. But mm. out at Grove Park Inn, they have the Pink Lady, and in the adjoining property, there is a beautiful uh, uh, set of shops and a museum called Grovewood. The Grovewood Gallery is based on what was the Biltmore Industries homespun shops. They, they had... Um, textiles they they made blankets and uh um you know some lovely uh textiles there that eleanor roosevelt and other you know famous uh characters of the day touted the the value and the quality of this biltmore homespun uh homespun goods and they were manufactured right there on the grounds of the grove park inn and today uh grovewood is uh like i say a museum there's a an antique automobile museum there and the factory where these linens were actually produced is just like a time capsule it's just like the workers clocked out one day and never came back and you walk down the halls of this large factory building and there's looms still threaded uh, on on the either side of you and uh, there's a huge coffee urn that must have held like 15 gallons of coffee uh, attesting to the number of people that would work there. And, um, Count right, absolutely. In 2009, I was up there with Joshua P. Warren's lemur team, and the lemur team uh, is an ac acronym for the League of Energy Materialization and Unexplained Phenomena Research. Ooh, <laughs> that's, yeah, that's cool. That's I think Josh, I think Josh may have created that around the, uh, the, the name lemur just because he thought lemurs were cool animals or something but anyway <laughs> it's quite a, um, and uh, quite unique uh, that I, I got to hang around with this gang that were basically like uh, you know the Scooby-Doo uh, mystery hunters uh, and in 2009 we were out at Grovewood 
and we were told by staff there that a night watchman had committed suicide in that building and that was uh he he was blamed for some of the ghostly activity at grovewood in particularly in the museum building um which at the time had been the office and this is 2009 again at the time i was i was going online trying to document a suicide uh, on the Grovewood property, and I never was able to do that. I just sent Joshua P. Warren an email the other day and, and told him that I had taken some of our family who were visiting out to the Grovewood galleries, and the gentleman who was watching over the Automobile Museum just quite, uh, you know, he, he just uh, up and said, would you like to go in the old factory building? And I was like, guys, we better do that because not everybody gets an invitation to go the halls of the old factory building and i said it's it absolutely has this ghostly atmosphere because it's i tell you it's been closed for 70 years or whatever but it's like i said those people just left work one day and everything is just how they left an absolute time capsule and uh, every every footstep creates this cloud of dust and if, if you if the light is coming through the window just right and you see the dust motes rise in the in the sunbeams. It it has a ghostly uh, appearance. And so I told my sister-in-law and uh, and uh, her boys. I said we better take them up on this <laughs> offer. And we went down and and we walked the halls. And I I emailed Josh and I said for the first time since 2009 I walked the halls in the old Biltmore Industries factory, and it was just as atmospheric and just as satisfying to me as a ghoul <laughs> uh, as it ever was. And I said, it's a shame we didn't uh, ever pin it down, pin down the details about this uh, night watchman who allegedly killed himself there. Um, and then, wouldn't you know it, in a, in a grand display of synchronicity, I come home and I've got an email waiting from a young man who is a docent out there at Grovewood. And he says, uh, Vance, I was doing some research and I, uh, I found that you were out with Joshua P. Warren at the Growwood property some years ago, looking into uh, the alleged suicide of a night watchman. Uh, and do you have any more information on that? And it occurred to me that in the period between 2009 and today, a number of Asheville newspapers, daily newspapers, have been digitized, maybe searchable. Oh. So I went in and I tried out a few terms and I, I discovered that in 1935, a gentleman by the name of Harry Burgess, this is the first time his name has been broadcast, perhaps since 1935, a young gentleman, not a young gentleman, an older gentleman, excuse me, by the name of Harry Burgess, who was the night watchman at Grovewood Galleries, had shot himself and died oh. in the office there. So, I mean, there, there are facts by to that wow. story, but it's been 13 years proving it, uh, just because we didn't have access to the to the facts until uh, digitizing newspapers is, is fantastic. You can read details down to you know the society columns and and uh, and learn things about people who you wouldn't have had any idea where to start in the old days, just spinning through microfilm. Yeah. <laughs> um, but we we found Harry Gorgeous, and and I might add he. Uh, he happened to have been a Scotsman. So you've got these English workers committing suicide 
here in Asheville. And I think that maybe Harry, uh, Harry Burgess and James Monterey, even though it was, you know, some 30 years apart, they, they were in similar situations mm -hmm. and who knows why they've done it, but, uh, there's some, some trace of their spirit or energy left behind. I, I truly believe that. Well, you know, we're speaking with Vance Pollock, Asheville, North Carolina historian. One thing I really wanted to ask you, Vance, there's so much paranormal activity associated with Asheville, North Carolina. Why do you think that is? Well, I'll borrow some of Joshua's, pop, Joshua P. Warren's explanations because I buy a lot of that. He he's a PT Barnum. He's a snake oil. <laughs> <laughs> but some of his some of what he some of, some of the excuses and explanations he gives make as good a sense as any. And he is quite a yarn spinner. Josh says that the Smoky Mountains being one of the oldest mountain ranges in the world, and also acting as a capacitor. Of course, you guys are probably familiar or have at least heard of the Brown Mountain Lights. Yeah. Yes, I wanted to ask you about those too. <laughs> the, very, the very crust of, of the earth here, the very uh, rock form at court here acts as a capacitor for uh, energies that we can't explain yet. Uh, the unexplained uh, is just like attracted like a magnet to um, Asheville and, and Western North Carolina in general. Um, I've been told that Bowcatcher, where Zealandia is, uh, where Helen's Bridge is in the old days, um, was very active for, for strange weather phenomena, ground lightning and, and things like that were very often reported along Bowcatcher Ridge. And in the late 70s, I suppose it was, the highway department blasted um, a, a large gap through the mountain where Interstate 240, which is the Asheville Bypass, I-240 goes through the open cut now, and the open cut was actually made through Bowcatcher Ridge just below the Zealandia Estate. And I'm told by old-timers who lived on the mountain or grew up on the mountain that um, perhaps the energy is not as strong now as it was mm. previously. Um, that somehow we've, we've broken the circuit by disturbing the earth. So I really do think that in some ways these paranormal uh, reports um, are closely tied to earth energies. I love that explanation. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And the more that we do this show, the more that I have begun to believe in these energies and spirits and what lies beyond what we can't see and the unexplained and what else exists out there. So I do really like that explanation of these this different energy coming towards Western North Carolina. And let's talk about those brown mountain lights because, Tim, I know you've mentioned them to me before and you've been very curious about them, but I don't know that I know much about um, what they are, or what people are seeing. 
Well, there are a lot of theories about the Brown Mountain Lights, um, whether they're uh, uh, some some of the older explanations were that it was swamp gas on the mountain, uh, the so-called will-o'-the-wisp. My father explained that he had seen uh, spontaneous uh, gas combustion in the swamps in Florida Mm -hmm. uh, as a young man, that they were camping uh, on a dark night and then suddenly uh the woods around them lit up bright enough you know that they could they could see and count the trees you know a hundred yards off and that was swamp gas or what some people will associate with the will of the wisp and the first time i ever heard stories about the brown mountain lights that's kind of what i associated it with was the uh the the fool the foolish fire the the will of the wisp the ignis fatuous um and it is it's similar to a lot of other folk stories and mystery lights the world over it just so happens that they're very strong and almost uh reliable have you seen them at brown mountain even though i've I've been up there i've been up there looking for them so many times and i have never seen them but i don't quit trying (laughs) i'll I'll go up there anytime and look is there a particular vantage point where you would have to be to see them oh there are several popular uh uh, places to look for them on highway 181 uh north of morganton near uh linville falls is an overlook brown mountain overlook um, a lot of people like to go to Wiseman's View. There's an overlook known as Wiseman's View that is a popular viewing spot. Um, and some people say that they've seen the Brown Mountain light, Lights on Table Rock, which is a popular uh, hiking trail, and it's a, a landmark in the Linville Gorge area. Table Rock is uh, as well known for its lights as Brown Mountain proper, I believe. Um, but they try to excuse it you know the skeptics try to excuse it and they say oh it's train lights or it's this or it's that and and try to explain it away um but there's still this mystery and this allure and um i don't know that you necessarily want to believe in the brown mountain lights if you were to go up there and see uh a good example of what people call the brown mountain lights you would be mystified. It doesn't matter how much of a skeptic or how much of a hard science person you would be impressed uh, and mystified by these lights. Oh, now I need to go see them. <laughs> I bet. I mean, I, we definitely need a field trip. We're only a few hours away. Oh yeah. To see the Brown Mountain lights. And it's always on my agenda. Every time I go out that way, it's always on my agenda to go try to look. Has anybody ever uh, compared it to ball lightning? That's been suggested. Um, again, it, it, there's nothing conclusive. And uh, even, you know, there are, there are some uh, spotty videos uh, that purport to, uh, dis- to show the brown mountain lights. And there's nothing really uh, consistent or conclusive about the way people describe them or the way they're they're portrayed but um some people are satisfied to say uh, ball lightning but i think it's something something different joshua p warren he got some night uh night vision footage of it um some pretty 
pretty good definition stuff years ago. And it looks to me like, it literally looks like a group of people walking and carrying torches at night. Oh. Because they kind of bob and hover. They move along the ridge. And that's one of the most popular ghost stories is that after the Catawba and the Cherokee Indians great battle on Brown Mountain, that the Indian maidens went looking looking for those yeah. warriors who were lost in battle. And they went back at night with, with tor- by, by torchlight to look for the missing braves. And um, so that's one of the earliest uh, folk legends is that it's, it's the uh, ghosts of the Indian maidens looking for their, their fallen warriors. Mm, that's a good legend. I mean, sad legend, but... That's pretty interesting. I like that thought of torches or going into the dark looking for fallen warriors right and, and it explains that the idea that they can be seen you know several yards apart and multiple lights it's not just one light like you hear about some of the the railroad lights uh, i think the mako lights was was a regional uh story about that you know the the conductor was walking down this the side of the railroad tracks with his lantern and he got hit and decapitated or whatever so anyway now you can stand on the railroad tracks and see the light bobbing down the down the uh, tracks and it's the it's supposedly the conductor who was killed there on the line that's his lantern mm. uh coming down the tracks but that's always a, a solitary light but at Brown Mountain, sometimes there's an entire group of lights, almost like a search party yeah. carrying torches. And it's eerie. Even the footage is eerie. But to stand out there at the overlook, I think maybe the excitement, again, hearkening back to a good ghost story being the, uh, the encouragement of teenagers, um, maybe just the excitement of <laughs> possibly seeing something like, like that. It's, it's always... Uh, exciting feeling to be up there uh staring staring over in the valley at, at frown mountain mm. we'll have to go and check it out all this talk of you know ghost stories being egged on by teenagers just makes me think that this was just a way for boys to get some young girl to like clutch onto their arm under bridges and looking at lights <laughs> could be oh yeah certainly certainly Certainly, uh, yeah, Bowcatcher and Helen's Bridge are also also uh, notorious makeout spots. So, yeah. <laughs> I wonder if anybody ever had their, like, first date at Helen's Bridge. <laughs> if there's a marriage that started at Helen's Bridge. There, there were probably Ash villains who were conceived at Helen's Bridge. Uh, <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah, see, if, if 80s slasher movies taught us anything, it was... Don't, don't go make out at night <laughs> in your car. Don't do it. Fancy, you mentioned earlier about, you know, the suicides that have been documented at various places in Asheville, North Carolina. And we're talking to Vance Pollock, Asheville historian. One of our previous guests, who turns out, I believe that you actually know him, Detective Scott Lunsford, who we like to call the Fox Mulder of the Asheville Police Department. He told us that he would, and I believe it was the Grove Park Inn, but I could be wrong about that, but there was a particular hotel in Asheville, and they would get calls out there all the time from That's witnesses right. who were, yeah, convinced that they saw somebody 
jump off the top to their death. You are right. I forgot about that story. And the and they would go out there all the time for these calls, and they'd get out there. Guess what? There's nobody to be found. You know, nobody, no nothing. I have documented that uh, after after the you know the big stock market crash in 1929, when you know there were a lot of uh, uh, suicides, uh, you know, spurred on by people's financial losses uh, or people thinking that their business was mm-hmm. you know all their all their hopes and dreams were dashed because uh, all of a sudden they were flat broke um and if you look in the, the early you know in the newspapers in in months to follow um well for instance the Asheville mayor at the time Gallatin Roberts committed suicide um for financial reasons in 1930 maybe anyway right on the on the tail of the uh, the great you know the um, the big stock market crash in 29 um but you had people coming to Asheville because there were actually hotel buildings tall enough to kill yourself off of the Jackson building who western north carolina's first skypers and it's a it's a beautiful building, and and one of the strange uh, things about it, I don't know whose idea this was, but the tile pattern on the plaza directly in front of uh, the Jackson Building looks like a huge bullseye, as if uh, <laughs> if you were up on top of the Jackson Building hmm. and and yeah. on dive to the ground, you would you would aim for, and right in the plaza in front of the Jackson Building is is this tile in late bullseye oh. on the ground. And I think that's where uh, uh, Scott said people would even hear, they would even see like a dark figure fall from the, the roof or what appeared to be a human silhouette plummet from the roof and they would hear it slap the ground. Uh, and, the, the, you know, that sickening mm. crush, that sound of, of a body blunt, you know, oh. you know weight hitting the pavement and then they would rush over there to see and there was nothing or they would even in some cases uh, i'm told probably by scott um you call the police and they would come to investigate and there's no sign of it so phantom um suicides from from some of the taller buildings around town that's yeah that's a matter of fact i believe because i've heard it from more than one person oh yeah and we're talking with Vance Pollock, Asheville, North Carolina historian. And Vance, I'd like to wrap this segment up on Asheville tonight just by circling back to Helen's Bridge. And interestingly, I discovered that writer Thomas Wolfe used to walk under the bridge and walked under it many times and mentioned it in his book, Look Homeward. So I'm going to have to check that book out now. But Vance, I, I discovered that there seem to be two prevailing stories about Helen who who supposedly hung herself off of Helen's bridge, the bridge to Zealandia. One one theory was you, you kinda mentioned this. There was a great fire and she was an anguished mother. Her her child was killed in the fire and she ran to the bridge and hung herself. That's one theory. And another theory that seemed to be kind of prevalent online 
was that she was actually a jilted, and, and this kind of ties into the debauchery situation I was talking about earlier, that she was ac- actually pregnant with the current owner's baby. So they were having a an affair, and, and it, somehow she became jilted. So this was like a jilted, pregnant, lover's affair situation where, again, she committed suicide, hung herself off the bridge. What what do you think is the real case with Helen of Helen's Bridge? I don't know. And there there so far hasn't been any evidence uh, come to hand, even though historians, scholars, researchers such as myself keep looking. Um, maybe the maybe the story I told about Harry Burgess revealing him thirteen years after we started to investigate, maybe just one day out of the blue, someone will uh, um, reach out and say, I know who said, I know who Helen is, and I'll invite any listeners uh, yeah. who may run across uh, tonight's podcast to, to, yeah, contact me with your theories about who Helen is. How, what do you think? <laughs> I mean, who was uh, Helen? There are, there, there are mediums who uh, claim to have uh, been contacted by uh, the spirit of Helen. And again, um, I think the, the thought that it might be Helen Clevenger who was murdered in Asheville in 1936 is, is, is at least reasonable because they say that the wrong man went to the gas chamber for her murder. That's a whole nother can of worms. Oh, yes, it is. We really appreciate you joining us tonight. You were so obliging to come on on such short notice. I want to say this about my theory about Asheville, and I just have to wonder. You know, it reminds me so much of the movie Shining, The Shining, which a Stephen King book, Jack Nicholson, and, you know, he goes to stay in a hotel with a tragic past, past he apparently is not aware of, and at some point, you know, he looks at a picture on the wall and he, he realizes he's been there all along. And this stuff just keeps happening mm-hmm. over and over and over again. And there's some other mysterious forces at play that, that maybe we just can never comprehend. Vance, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you, man. My pleasure. If Thanks folks, for having me. If folks want to find out more about uh lemur or your your project the, the carolinas in the 60s or anything else you've got going on podcasts etc you want to give a plug to any of that i have to give a shout out to my buddy joshua p warren one more time and uh, drop by his website hauntedashville.com if you're going to be in the area and you want to take the best haunted tour in Asheville, it's got to be hauntedashville.com and you can always read his book of the same title haunted Asheville. it's a just a great book and i think he wrote that right out of high school and it still holds up cool we'll definitely check it out next time in Asheville, i'll definitely do the tour hopefully we'll i'll get to meet joshua himself and he recommended you come on the show tonight and it's been terrific we really appreciate you thanks so much
You know, when fans started saying the words earlier, Helen, come forth, Helen, come forth. I know. <laughs> I was actually, you know, kind of on edge over here. I, I was wondering if something would happen. And we've had previous guests, you know, ex experts in EVP, electronic voice phenomenon that you know believe there's a connection between okay electricity computers wireless i hear some i hear something scribbling right now and i'm not what is that noise? i'm not doing that and i'm not doing that and either. it made me wonder you know he i think vance might be in Asheville right now and we're all connected with this electric energy you know this wireless energy yeah. and here's here right he now. is saying it i'm just yeah. saying gary arnold would tell you there's some you know there could be something there electronic voice pioneer mm-hmm. shout out to you gary arnold oh no, i'm legit not gonna be able to sleep for weeks you're gonna have to pay <laughs> you've been listening to all things unexplained if you liked this podcast please do give us a five-star rating and leave us a review If you would like to hear more All Things Unexplained, be sure to follow us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Our show depends on the support of listeners like you. Find us on Venmo under the business accounts. Just look for at Bigfoot UFO. If you can't get enough of us, go ahead and check us out at allthings-unexplained.com. A special thanks to our producer, director, sound mixer, editor, and the man who wears far too many hats. No, seriously, he wears a lot of hats. Dr. Tim Mounts. Without you, we couldn't keep the lights on. Thanks for listening to All Things Unexplained.